Good morning. About a year and three or four months ago, we began a singing emphasis service once a month. It was on the fourth Sunday of every Sunday evening of every month. And in that, we would take the opportunity to have several song leaders to lead us in songs, old and new. Uh, the song that we just sang was a fruit of uh, some of those events in the Friday night singing that we hoped as its goal was to help us to improve in our service to God in the facet of our singing. And I do believe it's been successful in that regard. And uh, the emphasis has changed not just simply because it is another act of worship, but because of what was prayed by Brother Jim in his prayer this morning. We're daring to do some audacious things to the glory of God. We're seeking to grow the church. We're seeking to grow our service as members of the church. And so much of that's beyond our capacity to do. We would fail, we would fall short without God's help. And so anytime we're seeking to do God's will and we need God's help, we need to go to Him in prayer. So starting the 12 fourth Sunday nights of 2023, we are going to engage in a meaningful way in prayer. It is not a less important service, a secondary service, as one might think sometimes of a devotional service, which of course we shouldn't, but sometimes in the back of our heads maybe we do. If anything, these are more important services because they're driving us in our mind's eye, at least if not in our posture, to our knees to ask God to help us and the things that we have in front of us that we want to do in order to succeed. It's not maybe just the more obvious things like equip that we've been talking about and are going to be talking about, but it's things like what's happening this weekend. And so there are several men who are uh, tasked with praying in a very specific way as a part of the service. So I encourage you to be here with um, your hearts ready to go before the throne of God in that special time of prayer. Are you armed? Now I realize that that is a strange question and in any given service with all that's going on in the process of time, we have heard about incidents that we would hope would never happen within the doors of the meeting house. But I want to assure you that while I could suggest that we can definitively know what percentage of us are armed this morning, ladies, we're not going to be looking into your purses. Men, we're not going to be patting down your suit coats or your pants legs. In fact, this is not a sermon that in any way touches on Second Amendment rights. But it is important to ask and answer that question, are you armed? But we speak in the specific way that the Apostle Peter speaks of, that was read to us, Andrew, by the way, first time these led us in worship at, since obeying the gospel, did a great job in reading Peter's words in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1 through verse 11. He says, as Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves for the same purpose. Because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of our times uh, in the, the flesh, not according to the lust of men, but according to the will of God. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1 and verse 2. You know, we find ourselves in a circumstance where we cannot afford to be unarmed. The Apostle Paul talks about our adversary, the devil, and he says that this evil one has flaming arrows, that he is shooting at the people of God in the midst of talking about our spiritual warfare in Ephesians chapter 6 and in verse 16. And it's a topic of conversation, not just with regard to the military, but with regard to national politics and international affairs. 
It's something that we're always finding ourselves not too far from, whether it's the bombing that goes on daily in Ukraine from the hands of the Russians, or it's those who are trying to enrich materials in order to have the ability to have nuclear weapons, or if it's the uh, endless debate uh, about gun control laws, or if it's about any number of different ways in which this idea of being armed becomes a physical necessity of life, to defend our homes. Peter is speaking of something far different from that. The people that Peter are addressing are peaceful people who are even persecuted people, but Peter says you cannot afford to be unarmed. And while I believe that Romans chapter 13 and other passages would give us legitimate reason to understand that we can defend ourselves, the Apostle Peter's not talking about that. Through his inspired words, he is talking about the necessity of our finding ourselves armed in a spiritual sense. And we cannot get too far away from something that's at the heart of this paragraph, and that is in view of the end of all things. So I want to ask you this morning, are you armed? There are three questions that this text deals with that we can ask in order to come to a right and biblical answer to the question. Number one... What are you living for? That's the first question to ask in order to find out whether or not that you are armed. The Apostle Peter is writing to a people, most of whom are living for this world, but he writes to the Christians and he says that they are not to be obsessed with or to live according to this world, that we're not to feel at home in this world. If you look at what the Apostle Peter says in the beginning, He addresses the Christians as those who are scattered aliens or exiles. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 1. But they're not just aliens or exiles geographically. They are in the same way spiritually. Chapter 2 and verse 11. And so the Apostle Peter tells them that their focus needs to be on living beyond this world. He says the emphasis is not to be on the pursuit of silver and gold. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 7 and verse 18. The pursuit is not to be on your flesh and your glory. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 24. It's not to be on fleshly lust that war against the soul. The Apostle Peter is telling us that all of us are living for something. We're going to live for the things of this life or the things beyond it. And if we live for the things of this life, he says we're not properly armed. But if we're living for, as Jesus did, that ceasing from the flesh, following the will of God, the law of God, then that's exactly how we find ourselves to be armed. So we ask ourselves, are we in following the world and worldly people? As he addresses that, he is talking about the road that we find ourselves on in verse 3 through 5. The U.S. Geological Survey tells us that interstate highways are made of several different ingredients. In any typical road that we drive on that is usually in need of some kind of repair, it has different pieces or particles in it. It has, is composed of compressed sand and compressed soil. It's composed of broken uh, stones, of asphalt, and even a little bit of steel. And what the Apostle Peter is saying is that every road that we travel on is made of some kind of material. Now you'll notice that the Apostle Peter in verse 3 through 5 says that because you are following the law of God and not the lust of the flesh, he says you find yourself uh, pursuing a better course. 
according to your version, whether it says walk in verse 3 or pursuing a course as it says in mind, the idea is that you are choosing a destination and you're starting from a particular starting point. In essence, the idea is it's like when you take out your phone app and you plug in an address that you don't know very well. You put it in and then you hit go and it's going to be tracing from your location to your destination. Every one of us are doing that in a spiritual sense. We are at some location spiritually and we are heading toward a particular location. This idea, pursue a course, is the same word that Jesus uses in the parable of the soils when he talks about those who are on the thorny ground. And he says these are the ones who hear and they go on their way. And as they go, they are choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life and they bring forth no fruit to maturity. Jesus is saying that all of us are charting a course that leads to a certain destination. And he does, as Peter does, in encouraging us to choose the the destination that leads us to him. He says, enter in through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads into destruction, and many there be that go in thereat. This is the road that Peter is talking about in 1 Peter 4, 3 through 5. When you begin to break down and to look at the road that the folks in Peter's day were being cajoled into being pushed or pressured into going down. It was a road that led to destruction. But it was a road that it was very easy for them to find themselves, given the pressures of society, to go down. We begin to think about the ingredients that that road is made of. The first one that Peter says is that this road is made of the ingredient of sensuality. And this idea of sensuality is the pursuit of that which is sexually promiscuous, or at least sexually improper. And it's not just fornication and adultery. It's those things that attract and entice and appeal to one to do those things that are inappropriate. The idea may be that if sexual immorality is the fire, then sensuality is the kindling that starts the fire. And so he says this road that those around you, Peter says, leads to this way of destruction that they're asking you to go with them on has the ingredient of sensuality. He says it also has the ingredient of lust. And the idea of lust here is to long for that which belongs to someone else. It it includes the sexual, don't covet your neighbor's wife, but anything else that would be improper for us to desire. If we apply that as it may commonly be the pressure that we face, what about for married people? Maybe with married people it's the temptation to give in to flirtation on the workplace. Or maybe it's to send and receive inappropriate texts and messages. For the unmarried, maybe it's feeding and fueling desires that cannot be righteously quenched. What Peter is doing is he is depicting a road made of various ingredients. The first being sensuality, the second being lust, and the third being drunkenness. He says, this is what's made of the road that many of the folks that were around are going uh, after. Peter says, this is the way that you used to live. We don't live that way anymore, but all of us have those in our lives, whether it's uh, those that we go to school with or, or those on the job or our friends for whom life is one long party that's interrupted just long enough to make enough money to get back to the party. And part of this is the idea of drunkenness, the extended engaging in the drinking of alcoholic beverages that leads ultimately to the damage of the body. 
It's what took Alexander the Great's life and so many after him who gave into such a habit of drinking that it broke down the body. The National Institute of Health talks about some statistics along this line that in the last month, 57% of a massive number surveyed said that they had consumed alcoholic beverages in the last month. That 25% confessed that they had binge drank in the last month of those surveyed. 16.3 million individuals in our country say that they have an alcohol abuse disorder that causes distress and harm to the body. 100,000 people in the United States each and every year die from physically, uh, physical ailments that are related directly to alcohol. The statistics worldwide of all alcohol-related deaths is 3 million. And so as we're thinking about a road that's leading to a certain destination, the Apostle Peter says that there are certain ingredients that make up that road, and drunkenness is one of them. Carousing is the idea of uh, a drinking party in which there's other immoral behaviors. It's what Paul is talking about in Romans 13 and verse 13 when he says that we're to be sober, to be of those of the day, not in sensuality and lust, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in strife and jealousy. Peter is speaking to a besieged and persecuted people, all too aware of the composition of the road that they're being encouraged to walk down. And he says, look, you need to see the component parts of this road. Another ingredient that made up that road were drinking parties. These are settings, these are social occasions in which alcohol is a featured part of it. It's not just alcohol. It would be what surrounded that, a general sense of revelry. There would be unwholesome songs, unwholesome activities that went along with that. And the idea in regards to that is that there were occasions where intellectuals would get together in the Greco-Roman world and they would discuss topics, high-minded topics, and those that were present would be well lubricated with wine. And then there was the ingredient of abominable idolatries. Those particularly of concern to Peter's audience would have been those who would observe the, the sacred festival days of the god Bacchus, the wine god, in which they would engage in that which was general revelry. You might think Mardi Gras or something like that. And so Peter's audience understood something of the environment in which we find ourselves today where there's a road being paved that causes one to focus in a particular direction and not only is it present so that we can see those that travel it, but we're also encouraged to join them in that. In fact, when we don't join them in that, there's a pressure that comes to us. I don't know how many of you remember how big this a story this was about a decade ago. Before Tim Tebow finally got married, he was very public about his virginity and how he was going to hold on to that until he got married. Well, the Huffington Post began to publish a series of tweets by Ashley Madison. Ashley Madison is a company that exists to facilitate adultery and 7 million subscribers in the United States. And so they would send out tweets like, score $1 million by scoring with Tim Tebow. Another tweet that went out said something to the effect of, well, it looks like Tim Tebow is still a virgin for now. Uh, win a million dollars courtesy of Ashley Madison. Now, not only does this company exist 
to facilitate illicit activities between people who have no right engaging in such things. But it bothered them that somebody as public as Tim Tebow would say, I'm pure, I want to keep myself pure. And they devoted themselves to try to drive that out of his life. Now, we don't live such public lives of notoriety, but there are those who not only can't believe that we don't cross a line and do the things that they do, but they want us to come along and they'll pressure us any way that they can. Peter is writing to a people saying, You've got to stand strong in the face of this. You can't give in to the pressures that surround you. I can't imagine what kind of pressures the Christians faced as they stood up for their faith. As we look at what Peter says, he's speaking in the negative in the first six verses. But then he turns around and he says, what are you living for? It's not just measured in what you don't do and what you stay away from. It's also measured in what you do pursue. And so Peter is going to make an emphasis throughout this letter of being of a sound mind and of a sober spirit. And he says that you do this in view of the end of all things. Peter's saying that you understand or need to understand that beyond this life there's something more, there's something better. And I want you to pursue that. And it's interesting that the first way that he encourages them to do that is by engaging themselves in prayer. You know, this takes us back. I wasn't going to announce this before the sermon because I intended to say something here about what's going to happen tonight. The collective power that's found when the people of God in the challenges that we face in our world today, when we come together and we beseech God to help us to achieve what it is he set out before us, how powerful it is. Peter is saying that as you look toward the end of all things and doing the will of God... He says that you pursue those things that help you to live in view of the end of all things. We set our minds on things above. Colossians 3, verse 1 and verse 2. You know, we just went through another political season in which politicians, candidates were put under the microscope. And it's amazing how much dirt is dug up on candidates. And when you think about the candidates that were just put out in the fall, that that you measure dirt by the ton. Can you imagine how difficult it would be if every conversation that you've had, every picture that's ever taken, every word that you say, everything that you did was put to such scrutiny? I can't imagine that pressure. What Peter is saying is, as we find ourselves in this spiritual warfare, if we're going to be adequately armed, we've got to realize the course of this world that leads to destruction, but also the mindset, the sober spirit, and the sound mind that engages in prayer that says, God, help me through what's bigger than me, that will prepare us for the end of all things. The first way for us to know if we are properly armed has to do with how we interact with this world. But Peter then turns his direction internally, among the body, and he says, if we're going to live armed lives, armed as we should be, then there's the way that we treat one another as Christians. It's not just handling those external pressures, but it's also responding appropriately to one another. And he gives us three ways that we interact with one another that can help us to be armed as we should be. And that first ingredient is that we must love one another. And what I find interesting is is that he puts this above all. Of all else that is going to be said, this is at the foremost of it. And there are two things about this love 
that we've got to keep in mind as we deal with one another in the body of Christ. That first of all, this love is to be constant. He says, keep fervent in your love for one another. This idea is without ceasing continually. There are going to be times when that's easier to do and times when it's harder to do in the discourse of living life with one another. But he is emphasizing this letter literally from the beginning to the end of how this must constantly be a part of our lives. If you go back to 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 22, he says, Just as you have obeyed the gospel from the heart unto a sincere love of the brother, brethren, love one another with a pure heart fervently. He then pans out in 1 Peter 2 and verse 17, and he speaks in a macro sense. It's not just the Christians where you go to church, but it's the Lord's church wherever it meets. Love the brotherhood, 1 Peter 2, 17. In 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 8, he says, I want you to keep fervent in your love for one another. He even ends the letter by saying in 1 Peter 5 and verse 14, greet one another with a kiss of love. We arm ourselves by demonstrating a different mindset than the world. We don't cave into the culture wars. We don't fail to love. We don't let things like wokeness or political pressures because of someone's politics or their race or because of their age. We don't allow that to cause our love to cease. Instead, we find a love with one another that's constant, even when it's challenged. And along with that, he says, it's a love that's concealing. It's very difficult. It requires a maturity in our spiritual lives to have this kind of love. Because what we like to do so often is we like to magnify the faults of one another. And what Peter says is that instead of giving in to a spirit of hypercriticism, love is that which covers a multitude of sins. In 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4 through 7, he gives us this definition of love. Love that's going to be true and it's going to be kind. It's going to be patient. It's not going to be jealous. It's not going to be arrogant. It's not going to brag. It's not going to take into account a wrong that's suffered. It's not going to be provoked. It's not going to rejoice in wrongdoing. It's going to rejoice in the truth and bear and believe and hope and endure all things. And so he says, as you find yourself in the body of Christ... You need to love one another in a way that's constant, even when put to the test, even with difficult people, but also one that's concealing in its nature. Then he also says that we must be hospitable with one another. You know, the shepherd of Hermas was read by the early church and talked about the hospitality that took place in the early church. He's here in this particular place talking about elders, but it applies to every single Christian But in this book, this writing that was read by the early church, what was said about them was that that elders were those who received the saints into their home without prejudice. They opened their hearts and their lives to all, regardless of whether they knew them well or didn't know them well, if they were like them or if they were different from them. They said they also ministered to the needs of all those who were suffering and struggling. And this they did in purity at all times. Hospitality is a powerful part of our strategy as the children of God. When we practice hospitality with one another, what we do when we bring them into our homes is we lower their defenses and we shatter their isolation. And so Peter is saying, I want you to practice this openness of your home and your hearts and your lives with the other saints. And by doing this, you're going to arm yourself to the difficult times that come. And he also says we must serve one another. If you want to be a living demonstration of the manifold grace of God, 
then you serve one another. You use every opportunity to reflect Christ in your relationships as we often see in Matthew chapter 20, verse 26 through 28. Arming ourselves, being adequately armed, is a matter of handling the threats that come from the world, but also the struggles that we have in our relationship with one another. And above all things, we find ourselves in the circumstance of being armed by asking the question, what authority will you follow? At the end of this paragraph, the Apostle Peter is putting an emphasis. It's an emphasis that you find throughout the entire paragraph, and that's on God. He says, as you speak and as you serve, you're doing so by the strength that God provides. That's everything that you say and everything that you do. It's a dose of humility for us. Because every soul that's won to Christ, every good thing that we accomplish, any time that this community knows anything about the Lehman Avenue congregation, it's because of God. When people are drawn to Christ, it's because of the God who is in us. If you walk through this paragraph, you will see how the Apostle Peter is constantly putting the emphasis on God. We serve according to God, verse 1. We demonstrate the manifold wisdom and grace of God, verse 6. We speak as the oracles of God. We serve by the strength of God. We do all things according to the will of God, verse 11. So it reminds us to plug into our power source. When we think about the audacious things that we want to do for God, it's going to be Him who provides the ability for us to succeed. Don't we think about that in our our personal lives? Anything that we seek to endeavor to do, in any part of our lives, if we succeed, it's because God empowers us to do that, so He's our power source. As Paul would say, whatever we do in word or deed, we should do all in the name of the Lord, giving thanks unto God the Father through Him. The Apostle Peter says that Jesus Christ had a purpose. He was armed with that purpose, and that purpose was to suffer. And he says you're to arm yourself with the same purpose, to endure what must be endured in order to get to the end of the road that he has paved with his blood. And to do that, we focus on what he focused on, not this life, but the life which is to come. You know, Alvin York's diary is still available online my family grew up not far from the Sequatchie Valley of Tennessee. Some of you have roots not far from there. Alvin York was a typical person of his time. He was an uneducated farmer uh, boy who uh, grew up there but honed skills like shooting. But few have learned the skill like Alvin York did. Alvin York went off to World War I when the Americans joined the fight in 1918. And he wrote a diary each and every day. And you don't read it very long before you find out just how religious Alvin York was. And he makes an entry on the date, October 8th, 1918. And it's a remarkable date because it was on that day that Alvin York single-handedly captured 132 German soldiers. Unless anybody not uh, believe that that was the case, there are affidavits of fellow soldiers who witnessed his doing that very thing. And as he writes about the fact of that, what he said was that it was God that day who gave the victory. He said, I was holding the rifle, but God won the battle. And he ended that entry by saying, if you trust him, he will save you. Now, Alvin York was an extraordinarily armed man who was able to do a lot. And he realized it was not because of him. It was because as he saw it, God was with him. 
Are you armed today? To be properly armed means that we've got to ask ourselves, what am I living for? Am I living for the world and worldly people, or am I living with the end of all things in view? To be armed, I've got to make sure that I'm properly treating my brothers and sisters in Christ. And I've also got to realize the source of my power, my authority, whatever I'm doing comes from God. I find it interesting that Peter's focus in this is to live in the view of the end. What would you do if you knew that the end was near? Peter says to live as though that were the case. There's been extremes that have been taken up by people. There's some who have said they believe they know when the end is going to be. You may remember back in October of 2011 that there was this big to-do about the end of the world because the Mayan calendar had no more days on it. And because of that, folks thought that that was a predictor that the world was going to come to an end. People began to buy up survival kits. And one guy in China even built a modern-day Noah's Ark, and it didn't happen. There was a man by the name of Harold Camping, and Camping had all of these dates in mind. He looked at biblical numerology, and he made all these public predictions that in 1994, the end of the world was going to come, and it passed. And then looking more closely at the numbers, he said it was May 21st, 2011, and it came and went. And he said, I miscalculated. It's October 21st, 2011. And it came and went. And nine more times he had people who listened to his predictions. None of us can remember this, but in 1910, Haley's Comet was passing through. Only passes by ever so often. And the belief was that Haley's Comet was going to collide with Earth. And it was going to be the end of everything. Or at least it would pass close enough that poisonous gases would fall and would kill everybody. And so some entrepreneurs went to selling bottled air and a lot of people bought it. But it goes all the way back to the second century when a man by the name of Montanus believed that the Holy Spirit spoke to him and told anyone who wanted to go to heaven that they had to meet him at Bithynia at the time that he predicted and that God would send them up to heaven together. People have been doing that, trying to predict that they knew when the end was going to come. And the Apostle Paul wrote to a church at Thessalonica who seemed to be troubled by individuals who were telling them. They were alarmed. They were fearful. When people were saying the day of the Lord has already come, they were idle. They checked out of life and they just sat around waiting for him to come. 2 Thessalonians 3 and verse 11. Paul says that's a wrong extreme. But Peter deals with the other extreme. He says some deny that Christ is coming back. 2 Peter 3, 3 and 4. He's not come back because of his long suffering, waiting for as many as possible to be saved. 2 Peter 3 and verse 9. But here in 1 Peter chapter 4, what he says causes me to ask the question, what would I do if I knew the end was near? The end of all things is at hand. Of course, in a physical sense, that can be the case. That my life may end at a time that I'm not prepared for and cannot foreknow. It may mean that Christ will come again at any moment. A moment that's meant to be a joy and a thrill for me. But if I'm not living for the end of all things, a time for me to make corrections as I need to. But we can be armed. We can leave armed and equipped for the battle that we fight. Because Christ has given us the victory. Christ died on the cross and did for us what we could not do for ourselves. Christ shed his blood to give us the ability to arm ourselves so that we can follow in his purpose. Perhaps this morning there's someone who needs to be obedient to the gospel of Christ. 
that needs to respond to that grace in obedient faith. We'd love to assist you in that. Newsflash, the baptistry's ready. If you're ready, we're ready for you. And if you're a child of God who has not armed yourself for living in this life, and you need our help, our strength, our prayers, with you and for you, we would encourage you to respond right now as we stand and sing.